You may be seated. I'm going to let the uh, children be dismissed for junior church. And as they go on their way, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Book of 2 Timothy and chapter 3. Just going through a brief series on God's love for the, His body, the church. Last week we looked at the fact that God is passionate about the church and our desire is to see us as a church family grow in our love and passion for the body of Christ. We talked about the fact last week that God calls the church His bride, His wife, and that leads us into an understanding of how deeply God loves the body of Christ. Something else that God values in His church is the place and supremacy of Scripture. This morning, my desire is to communicate to you the value and priority of the Word of God in our daily lives. It has a place of supremacy by God's design. It is the means that He desires to use to build up His church and to make us strong. Now, most of us sitting here this morning know that America was founded as a nation that was by and large Christian at some level. Uh, it was founded by people who believed that there was a creator who revealed his moral truth through a book called the Word of God or the Bible. And so the original intent of the founders was to establish a place where biblical truth could be lived out in the experience of our lives. I think all of us this morning also realize that our country has drifted very far from that original intent, that original design or desire. For many people in America, God is dead. And one writer, one philosopher has said that when God is dead, anything becomes permissible. And I think anyone that desires to see our country turn around and move in a moral direction is aware that we have experienced a moral drift in America. We have drifted away from absolutes that used to anchor our country, anchor our families, anchor our churches. And there's a need for us to recapture the deep value and preciousness of the Word of God. Al Mohler puts it this way. He says, The permissiveness of modern society can scarcely be exaggerated, but it can be traced directly to the fact that modern men and women act as if God does not exist or is powerless to accomplish His will. The, the Christian church now finds itself facing a new reality. For the most part, the church has been displaced by the reign of secularism. Okay, does that make sense? By and large, the church has been displaced by the realm of secularism, meaning what wins the day in America is what people think. In other words, wh whatever the dominant opinion is in America, that is what should determine what is right and what is wrong. The Daily Newspaper, he goes on to say, brings a constant barrage which confirms the current state of American society. This age is not the first to see unspeakable horror and evil, but it is the first to deny any 
consistent basis for identifying evil as evil or good as good. In other words, we live in a world that, that clearly recognizes the moral decline. But the world we live in doesn't want to speak authoritatively to the problems that exist. They're just there. But to call evil evil and good good is something that our culture is losing the ability to do. And it reminds me of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Paul giving a charge to Timothy, his last letter, to be a man of God in the church who preaches the word of God in the church. He says in verse 3, For the time will come when men will not put up with or tolerate sound biblical teaching. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge the duties of your ministry. It's fascinating, isn't it, that 2 Timothy, written 2,000 years ago, could hit the nail so right on the head. Men will want to hear what they want to hear. They won't want to hear absolute standards of truth. They will want to gather around them people who have similar or the same opinions that they have. Al goes on to say this. He says, little progress towards the reestablishment of a moral center of gravity can be detected. In spite of the fact that we see the drift, little progress towards finding a center of gravity morally can be detected. Instead, the culture has moved swiftly toward a more complete abandonment of all moral conviction. And then this is the conclusion that he draws. And it's a question that he asks. The conclusion is, the church must today be willing to be the moral what? Now, your temptation is to say what? The moral majority, right? But in the world we live in, we have to be willing to be the moral minority. Okay, and you know what that requires? That requires courage. If you believe that there is absolute truth, that is true for everyone, you will now be in the minority in America. And let's be very honest. Not many of us want to be in the minority. We don't want to be pushed to the margins of the pages of life. We want to be part of the main story. For young people and for adults, the desire for human approval and acceptance is overwhelming. And it often silences the message that we have been called to take to the world around us. That they so desperately need to hear. Whatever the issue, the church must speak as the church that is, as the community of fallen but redeemed who stand under divine authority. The church's convictions must not, must not emerge from the ashes of our fallen wisdom, but from the authoritative word of God, which reveals the wisdom of God and his commands. And folks, when we stand for the absolute truth of God's word, when we say that what it says applies to all people, we will become a moral minority. And the question the church has to wrestle with, I believe, again and again is, are we willing to be that 
as we stand up for the Word of God and the truth that the Word of God communicates to us. There are two problems in the world that you and I live in. In America, where we have become, if I use this term, if I say that we have become as a nation post-Christian or post-biblical, that, that, that what determines truth, what determines morality in America is by and large post-Christian. In other words, the concern isn't what would the church think about that or what does the Word of God say about that. We are, in that sense, post-biblical or post-Christian. People are more concerned about what you feel about things, about giving people freedom, liberating people to do what they would like to do, and don't interfere in their life. What happens behind closed doors is none of our business. That kind of mood or that kind of mindset is very prevalent in the world that we live in. The result is this. We have two things occurring in our country, and whatever is occurring in our country threatens to impact the body of Christ. And we need to realize that we live as Christians in an environment. That environment that we live in tends to affect what we believe and how we live. And if you don't know that, you're in a place that is very dangerous. You need to realize that you live in a world that pressures you in certain directions, philosophically, theologically, and morally. You need to learn to resist that pressure. The pressure is moving us towards two things. One is a rampant moral confusion. Okay, a rampant moral confusion. A lack of clarity about what's right and what's wrong. And that comes up in a number of areas in the world that we live in. The, probably the most prominent example of that is in the area of sexual morality. There are shocking cases that come out and as a Christian, I hope that you are at some level surprised by the, the lack of an ability to declare moral absolutes in the face of such wretched evil. There's a case that has arisen recently in Italy. Just was going on the news page yesterday on the internet. You should look at Drudge Report and CNN. And this article popped up. Love Affair Scandalizes Italy. Okay, I wonder what that's about. What love affair could scandalize a nation? The story, and I'll just try to keep this in simple terms. The story is about a 34-year-old Italian man who engaged in a relationship with a 13-year-old girl. As a result, was rightly sentenced to prison time. In this case, however, only 12 years. When the case was reviewed by an appellate court, the sentence was reduced to one and a half years, which by statute in Italy would mean that you serve no time whatsoever. Now ask yourself the question, what kind of world do I live in where wrong is called right and when there is no ability to call unspeakably evil acts evil what kind of a world do I live in the rationale behind this decision a judge in Rome said the law must always look to be reasonable in these cases must always look to be reasonable because we want to look nuanced and intellectually persuasive right 
she says this, every relationship is, is a relationship and the real maturity, whether physical or psychological, of the minor must be weighed with the help of experts. So that what determines the right and wrongness of this situation is the personal disposition and life of the individuals. That then, their personal perceptions and opinions and persuasions, then determines whether or not this unspeakable horror is in fact morally offensive or evil. You see where we end up? That kind of thinking and discussion also takes place in the country that you and I are so blessed to live in. We live in a world where moral fog is very prevalent, where relativism, a lack of moral clarity, is prevalent. And when someone proclaims truth, as something that is true for all people at all times, they are seen as the outsider. So, in a year of political discussion, there's a fascinating trend. If a candidate is an evangelical Christian, what's the most likely question that they will be asked? Here's what it is. Will you allow your theological beliefs, your personal convictions, to affect how you govern. Implied in the question is what? If you will allow your personal beliefs to affect your decision making in government, then you are by that conviction ruled as unacceptable and unworthy. Now that's scary. But that's the world that we live in where you can't appeal to absolute truth as a means of determining what should happen in your life or in the life of your children, in your family life. We live in a very dangerous time, morally speaking. So there is this problem in our world of moral confusion. Also, there is the problem of biblical illiteracy that is becoming prevalent, but praise God, is correctable. Okay? We live in a culture... Our church, because it is part of the culture, tends to be biblically illiterate, and I believe this with all my heart. The church can and should do something about that. We need to shine the light of God's Word into our daily lives. And so this morning, I want us to turn to this passage of Scripture with the desire that we realize and acknowledge we live in a world where there is moral confusion, ambiguity, and where there is a lack of light, so the result is that we're people wandering around in darkness, the church should live differently than that. Why? We have been called by God to be the light of the world in which we live. And I want to help us do that this morning. What the world that we live in, I believe, needs is a church, and I don't mean just our church, I mean the body of Christ at large. What the world needs is a church that proclaims the truth of God's word, the moral absolutes of God's word, the gospel of Jesus Christ without apology, even if proclaiming that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life makes you, in the eyes of your culture, appear to be probably dangerous, to use the words of Phil Riken. Those that proclaim moral absolutes, who believe that Jesus is the only way, who believe that there are moral absolutes that should govern behavior, if you believe that and you state that publicly, you will be seen as probably dangerous. Words like fascist and bigot will be applied to Christians who stand up for the truth of God's word. Hence the call from Al Mohler. 
are we willing, as the body of Christ, to be a moral minority? Are we willing to be a moral minority? To be the light of Christ in the world that he has called us to live in. What the world needs is a church that teaches the word of God. So, when you come to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, Paul says this. He says to Timothy, his son, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Isn't that fascinating? Be a preacher of the word when it is popular and when it is unpopular. I believe this with all my heart. We live in an age when the proclamation of God's truth as absolute and applying to all people at all times and all places is not a popular message. If you want to be popular with your friends, do you think you should bring out your Bible and start reading it at lunchtime in your workplace, at the school, at lunchtime? Will you gain popularity if you pull out a Bible, put it on the desk, and start to read it? I was challenged this week. I have a friend who is a principal at a school in, uh, in New Jersey. Let me just leave it that general. This man every day, is, and is known amongst the teachers, goes into his office every day when he begins his day and prays for every teacher and leader in that school by name every day. You know what? He's not afraid to deal with what that looks like. Like, what an awesome testimony. What is he saying? I believe in the power of God. I believe in the truth of God's word. And I'm going to pray that God will bring that to bear in the context of this school that has been given to my charge. It is my responsibility. Folks, we need to stand up for the truth. We need to be people that take the word of God into our world. I need to be a pastor who brings the word of God to light in this context. Every Sunday school teacher in this church needs to be an individual who proclaims the word of God into the context of the life of their students. Every small group Bible study needs to value the word of God and communicate it as the light of God into each of our lives. We need to be a church that values the Bible. Now, why is that true? Let me just give you two thoughts this morning. One is this, because of what the Bible is. We need to value this book because of what it is. Now, I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm going to let, you, let it tell you what it is. Look back to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. It says, all scripture is God-breathed. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What is the word of God? What is the word of God? This text makes one very simple assertion. It says that the word of God is God-breathed. Now most of you have... Uh, well, maybe some of you haven't. Some of us more uh, impatient types have made this statement to someone. Okay? Someone's talking to you, especially with children, right? When they're younger, you say, don't breathe what? I'm trying to get them to stop talking. What do you say? Don't breathe another word. Okay? Breath is the means by when we exhale, that's when we communicate. Okay? That's when words come out. What is Timothy, Paul saying to Timothy about the Bible? He's saying all scripture is God breathed. What does that mean? The ramifications of this are fascinating. It means that when 
the Bible speaks, God is speaking. That when it communicates moral absolutes, it is communicating the moral absolutes that God designed for humanity. So when we look at why the Word of God is to have a place of priority in the context of the church, it is important that it have that place because when the Bible is speaking, God is speaking. That also means this. There is no adequate substitute for the Bible in the life of the church. Paul says to Timothy in verse 2 of the next chapter, preach the Word. What is the Word? It is the God-breathed, inspired Word of God. When you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, if you want to just flip back a few pages, you find another fascinating affirmation about the church and what it is to be. Paul says to Timothy, if I am delayed, I am writing, verse 14, these things to you so that you will know how people should conduct themselves, how they should live in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of what? Of truth. The church is to be the place where the word of God is upheld and supported and proclaimed. Why? Because when the Bible speaks, God is speaking. If you want to know what God feels about morality, about sexuality, about finances, about family life, about marriage, if you want to know what he thinks, you have to to go to the Word of God. And when you read what the Bible says about those things, you are listening to the voice of God. Folks, that is an awesome privilege. It is what should bring clarity into the life of believing Christians. That we can go to this touchstone of truth and find out what God wants us to do in specific circumstances in our lives. What a blessing what a blessing. And yet the truth for many of us is that we don't spend time in the Word of God on a regular basis. When you come to church, here's what you should expect. You should expect that the essence of the public discourse will be the Word of God. That the essence of the songs that we sing will be the message of the Word of God. It should dominate all that happens here on a Sunday morning and through our gatherings during the week. One of the ways that I like to illustrate this is, is, is in this sense. When you go to church, you should expect that you will hear the Word of God. Just like when you go to a local restaurant to eat. What do you expect? Food. Right? You go to a restaurant and they say, hey, we don't serve food. You say, well, why do you call yourself a restaurant or a diner or a luncheonette? If you don't serve lunch, if you don't serve dinner, if you don't serve breakfast, why do you call yourself that? Same thing should be true of the church. A test of whether a church is appropriate for you to attend should be, do they proclaim and apply the Word of God to their life? So the first thought is this. The Bible is the Word of God. When it speaks, God is speaking. The second question I want to ask this morning is this. What benefits does the Bible promise that it will bring to our life if we indulge in it, if we enjoy it, if we receive it and participate in it? What differences does it make in the life of individuals? And I want to show you from this passage three benefits that will come if we make the Word of God central in our experience as a church. Verse 15 of chapter 3, 
And, and let me just pick up in verse 14. Paul says this to Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of because you know from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God, which is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Okay? When Paul talks about the Word of God and is communicating to Timothy its value, he takes him back to the beginning of his Christian experience. He takes him back to the place where he heard the Word of God, and what did the Word of God do? It showed Timothy the good news of a Savior named Jesus Christ. It showed him that someone had come to die on a cross to pay the price for his sin. And the, as the Word of God... I've got to tie my shoe here real quick. One second. I, just felt, I felt that untie, and I'm going to stumble up here. Okay, it was through that word from God that Timothy came to know the good news of the message of Christ. We learn of salvation and life change through the word of God. John Stott says it this way. He says the Bible is essentially a handbook of salvation. Its overarching purpose is to teach not the facts of science, which men can discover by their own empirical investigation, but the facts of salvation, which no space exploration can discover, but only God can reveal. Folks, the first blessing that you come to when you start to encounter the Word of God is that it tells you about your sin and how it came about. It tells you God's remedy for that sin, how you can get, get past guilt, how you can be truly forgiven. And Paul can say to Timothy, this word that you received from infancy is able to make you wise, knowledgeable about how to find salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now Romans 10, 17 says this. It says, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. As you read the Bible, as you study the Bible, as you listen to the Bible, God will clarify the gospel and bring you to a place of saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first clear benefit of the Word of God is that it will bring you to salvation. If you're here this morning and you say, Pastor Tim, I would like to know more about God's intention, His purpose, and His design for my life. I don't know Jesus Christ personally. I've just started coming out to this church. What should I do? Can I make a simple suggestion to you? Read the Word of God. If you don't know Christ, if you don't have a good knowledge of Christ, I would encourage you to pick up the Gospel of John. And before you read, just say, God, my heart is open. My heart is open. Would you show me the good news? Would you show me how I can be forgiven? How my life can be changed? through a personal relationship with the Savior. And I believe this with all my heart. As you read the Word of God, God will allow His Spirit to enlighten your eyes and to illumine you to the glorious message of a Savior whose name is Jesus. So the first thing that comes, and Paul's reminding this of, to Timothy as a pastor. He is pastoring a church. And what is Paul saying to him? Timothy, value the Word of God because it's through the Word of God that you experience new birth. You came to life through the Word of God. So the first blessing we have is the gospel of Christ. Second blessing we have is this. And this is so, you know, when you look at the world we live in, this is so crucial. The Bible says that the Word of God will give us discernment. And I, in my notes, I have discernment slash clarity. It will give us discernment slash clarity. 
from it we learn the difference between what is right and what is wrong. Look at verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed, and as a result of being God-breathed, it is useful. Okay, fascinating word. It is beneficial. It has a purpose. It has a place in our lives, in our daily experience. What is it useful for? Now, we know why it's useful. It's useful because it is God-breathed. It is His very Word. As a result of being God's Word, it is useful. And the question is, in what way? Notice how it says it. It is useful for rebuking and correcting. Meaning, for showing what is wrong in your life and showing you how to get it right. To, to see where, in terms of your thinking, it's out of line and how you can get it corrected. It is also useful for <clears throat> training in righteousness. It is a book that will show you how to live. It straightens us out and teaches us to do what is right. Folks, here is the blessing of the Word of God. It eliminates the moral fog, the moral cloud that is prevalent in Western society. In America, throughout Europe, there is a lack of moral clarity. The Word of God will help you to see and to discern the difference between what is appropriate for your life and what is not. And uh, here's the promise I'll give you. If you align your life with the Word of God, it doesn't mean your life will be trouble-free, but I can guarantee you this. Your life will be more successful from God's perspective. And I believe when your life is more successful, more purposeful from God's perspective, you will have greater joy in your life. Okay? Our tendency when we look at regulations and stipulations and guidelines is to think that when I start following them, it, it's kind of restrictive, right? Isn't that how we look at things? You look at the speed limit sign, what do you see? A restriction. I, you're late going somewhere, you see a speed limit sign that says 25. I have to go 25. Do you count it a blessing? No. No, but I guarantee you something. If a little child jumps out in front of your car and you're able to stop, what you're going to say is, thank God. Okay, just because it's restrictive doesn't mean it isn't protecting you. Okay, restrictions that are in the Word of God, the moral absolutes, God put them there to give you moral clarity so that you can see clearly. Folks, there are so many options in the world that we live in. Just take one illustration. Think of <clears throat> cable TV. Think of satellite dish TV. All the men are saying, yeah, I'm thinking about it. Okay, think about it. What does it bring? It brings more options into your life. And if you lack moral clarity, if you don't have absolute standards of what is appropriate and inappropriate for an individual, you can be sucked into a trap that will destroy your life, your marriage. If you are not very careful to know that God has spoken about issues of morality. See, the more options increase, the more chance there is for moral fog and a lack of clarity. The Word of God comes to do what? To say, this is wrong and will not bring joy to your life. This glorifies me and will bring great joy to your life. Folks, if I ignore the Word of God, I will lack clarity. I will lack discernment. God gives His Word. He can say to you, don't do this, do this. Now, none of us like being corrected. But when we begin to experience the blessing of obedience in our lives... We thank God for it. The things that we used to think were fun, we realize now that that really wasn't fun. It had all kinds of baggage attached to it. It was destroying my life. And now I'm walking in righteousness. I do a lot less things, but I have greater joy and satisfaction in my life and in my relationships. 
Folks, that's what God's Word does. As we read it and apply it to our lives, it removes the moral fog that is so prevalent. Now, everybody in this room may not have a high IQ. I have no idea what my IQ is. My parents never told me. Okay. It just makes me wonder. But here's the cool thing. Everybody in this room is not blessed with a high IQ, but here is something that is powerful. Every person in this room who is willing to submit themselves to the authority and truth of God's word can be wise. Every person. You see, you don't have to have a PhD to know how to live. In fact, this court verdict that I read you is from a judge who has a PhD who can't tell if it's right or wrong for a 13-year-old child to have a physical relationship with a 34-year-old adult. Because I can tell you something, I don't want to live that kind of life. I thank God for the truth of His Word. We need to look at the Word of God and say, this is one of the great blessings that God has given to us. It allows us to see. I mean, you don't have to have a doctorate degree to understand that that is evil, that that is immoral, that that dishonors God. You have a country, Italy, shuddering under the ramifications of that decision. Why? Because it is shocking where Western culture can go when it disregards the absolute truth of the Word of God. Truth is willing to go to that 34-year-old man and say, what you are doing is, in fact, evil. But our culture doesn't want to say things are evil. As a Christian, if you have the light of God's Word in your life, you have a huge, significant blessing. I want you to turn back to Psalm 19 with, uh, 119 with me real quick. Psalm 119, one of the ramifications of this truth emerges in, in Psalm 119 in, in, in a number of verses. I just want you to turn back and look at this with me real quick. You may not have a high IQ, but you can be wise. You may not be smart, but you can be morally intelligent. Psalm 119 and verse 9, the Word of God says this. And every young person, I pray that you will listen to these words. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. Verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I may not sin against God. Verse 24, your statutes are my delight. They are my, New International Version says it this way, they are my counselors. They guide me, they give me clarity, they show me how to live my life. Folks, what a blessing we have in the word of God. Turn over then to verse 97 of Psalm 119. The psalmist says this, he says, Oh, how I love your law. I will meditate on it all day long. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. And I love this next statement. Students, take this to school with you. I have more insight than all of my teachers. Why? Not because I am so sharp, not because I have an IQ, but because I meditate on your statutes, on your word, your decrees, your standards. And they give me light in my life. You don't have to be intelligent to live a life that honors God. You just simply have to be committed to the truth of God's precious word. Verse, uh, verse 100, I have more understanding than the elders 
for I obey your precepts. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that powerful? That if you take the word of God, bring it into your life and live it, it will transform your life. And it will make you gloriously wise and honorable. So Timothy hears from Paul, preach this word, this word of God. Do it in season and out of season, when it is popular and acceptable and when it is unpopular and unaccepted by the multitudes. Still be committed to communicating biblical truth. In an age that has lost the capacity to tell the difference between right and wrong, when the collective sigh and understand this, teenagers, I don't mean this as a slam against you. When the collective sigh is something like, oh, well, whatever. Where there's a lack of desire to determine what is right and what is wrong. The Word of God will so help you to live a life in which you know the difference between right and wrong, where you have discernment and clarity. The other thing that the Word of God will do for you is it will produce maturity. Verse 17 of 2 Timothy 3. When we study the Word of God and apply it to our lives, we grow up spiritually. The New Living Translation says it this way. It says, the Bible is God's way of preparing us for life. Verse 17 in the New International Version. The Word of God is effective for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Everything that God wants you to do, He will show you how to do it through His Word. What a blessing we have laying on our laps in front of us this morning. First Peter, if you just turn ahead a few books, I want you to see one application of this. First Peter, <clears throat> chapter 1. First Peter, chapter 1, and verse 23. I want you to see the connection between the new birth and the long-term impact of God's word. Verse 23 of 1 Peter 1, it says this. For you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of one that is imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. Okay, so it is through the word of God communicated that new birth takes place. Now, when you were born, what are you? The garrisons at their house today have a child that was born last Wednesday. What do we call that child? It's an infant, right? We expect over the next year that we will see dramatic growth and progress, right? Why? Because we're going to say that's normal. Now, if I say to you, what is the cause of that growth? What's your answer going to be? What is the cause of that growth in that infant? Nourishment, right? It's taking in food. Where does it get that food? from its mom. Peter understands this connection. So when you come into 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2, the word of God says this. You also, oh, I'm sorry, verse 2. It says like newborn babies. Okay, when did this birth take place? Back up to verse 23. You were born again by the living and enduring word of God. Like newborn babes, crave pure spiritual milk which is a connection directly to what is above what is the pure spiritual milk it is the word of god crave it so that by it you may grow up in your salvation that you may become everything that god wants you to be as his child how does it happen the word of god 
I can tell you this. If the garrisons don't feed Kara, Kara will not grow. And in fact, Kara will die. But as that child does what a child does, and I was holding that little baby on Friday, um, that child was hungry, so its mouth was flapping. <clears throat> and I was very little help. What was that child doing? Demonstrating a craving. Because what the child is craving is essential to maturity and growth. Folks, here's the question that we have to answer. Do I crave the pure milk of God's word? Do I understand that I live in a culture that is full of moral fogginess, that is full of biblical illiteracy, and that biblical illiteracy affects the church? Do I understand that? And if I do, and it's very easy to look at the culture we live in and see the dramatic flaws that are present. It is very easy. But the question is this, what will I do about that? Will I change my life, alter my life, so that receiving this word can become a normal part of my life? Will I take advantage of God-given opportunities to hear the word of God on Sunday morning? in adult Bible studies, in Sunday school classes? Will I make it a priority in my life? Because if I don't, I stunt my spiritual growth and I will be more deeply affected by the moral relativism and biblical illiteracy of my day. And that leaves me in a very dangerous place. God says that His Word is useful for helping us to see what is right and wrong. And it is helpful so that we may become Equipped in every way for every good work. I'm going to clue by, conclude by sharing with you a verse from Ephesians chapter 6. And I believe it's verse 17 or 18. The Bible warns us that we are in a war. We're in a battle morally. In order to fight that battle, we are given one weapon for offense. We are given a, a covering of armor spiritually that protects us from the assaults of the world that we live in and of the evil one. There is one weapon that you are given to take with you into the moral fog, into the biblical illiteracy of our age. One weapon. You know what it is? The Word of God. And God, by His grace, has given us His indwelling Spirit who does what? He says, do this, do this, do this. He points to the Word of God. Folks, the church's job is to proclaim the truth. My job as a pastor is to preach the word. Your job is to take it, to study it, to learn it, to be in it on a regular basis. And when you do that, the Bible says that there will be a blessing for you. Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 13, last night that he spends with them, he says, now I have given you my word. Biblical truth. And what does he say? Blessed are ye if you... Know them? Is that what he says? No? You know what he says? Blessed are ye if you do them. Blessed are ye if you do them. I read a statistic last night that says this. It says, based on the, the recordings of the Bible on MB3s or on CDs and things like that, we now know that you can read through the Word of God in 71 hours, just in a, in a, if you were to sit down for 71 hours straight, you can read through the whole Bible. And most of us say, what do we say? Oh, I don't have time. 
don't have time. Folks, I want to challenge you. God has given us this book to show us how to live. A lot of us don't know how to live. A lot of us are struggling in various areas of our lives. We need the light of God's truth. And I want to challenge you as your pastor. Find time to get to the lifeline of the Word of God so that you know what's right and what's wrong. And so that when you're making decisions and raising your children and selecting a mate and whatever it may be, that you are sure that you are grounded in the truth of the Word of God. Because when this book speaks, God is speaking to you. If you don't know Christ, this book will lead you to faith in Christ and give you the hope of eternal life because it points to your greatest need and it points to the satisfaction of your greatest need. There is a Savior, Jesus Christ. This book is about Him. This book is about how to live for Him. We need to know the truth of God's Word. We need to live it in our daily lives. And when you do, Joshua chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. And I just want to close with this passage. Listen to what this says. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful, diligent to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. Stay straight on that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Hear the truth. Know the truth. Apply the truth of God's word to your life. And it will make a difference in how you're weak this week goes. Let's bow our heads together. Father.